Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. I'm so happy that you could join me today. I'm also happy I've got this new setup. I've got a microphone, I've got a good quality camera, so hopefully the podcast quality goes up and with it, viewership goes up because we want to get these out to more people. So I'm, I'm very grateful for everybody tuning in today and we've got a very interesting topic. So in light of the Pride Month, that is going on right now, I decided that I was going to share some of my thoughts. Um, I, I was debating between whether or not I should um, write out what I wanted to say in a very strategic, specific way, um, because it's a delicate subject, or if I should just share from my heart. And as I kind of prayed about it and thought about it, I figured it would probably be best if I just share from my heart. And I think that this is a very important subject, and I don't want it to, I want to be sensitive to how deep this is in our society, and how we as Christians should be responding to it, because I think that there's the tendency for us as Christians to disconnect from large controversial subjects that sometimes can be overwhelming, we don't know how to deal with them, we don't want to deal with them. And so we can kind of turn a blind eye. Um, and the reality is we live in a culture right now where certain things, certain agendas are being pushed. And they're being pushed very hard. They're, they're being pushed fearlessly. They're being pushed into our education system. They're being pushed into our governments. They're being pushed into even our ability to have religious freedom in terms of what we say, what we speak, what we do. And so I think it's important that we as Christians, we take a stand for what we believe is the truth, and we don't back down. We, we're right out in the forefront pushing our agenda, too. And our agenda is to let the world know that it's a sinful, sinful place, but that there's good news. There is a Savior who came to save sinners. And so that's our agenda, and that's the message the world needs for healing and so as we dive into this subject, I want to be sensitive to the seriousness of the subject, but I don't want to pull any punches either. I want this to be straightforward. I want it to be honest. And I want us as Christians to stand up when we need to stand up. And so the first thing that I want to point out is the very nature of the word pride. I find it ironic that one of the seven deadly sins is being triumphed around as though it is a wonderful, beautiful thing. We think about the idea of Satan's fall and how it's the idea of the pride of life, wanting to be God, wanting to usurp the authority of God. And the root of that is pride. And what we see in our culture, in a very, very similar way, is the idea of we want to be God. We want to rise up and we want to take the place of God. We want to take his authority and we want to be able to call the shots for what we think is right, what we think is wrong, without having him telling us or making the judgments. We want to make those judgments. And this traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where we see the serpent say, did God really say? And ultimately, we see Adam and Eve then taking the fruit and eating the fruit because they had deemed that they knew better than God. They knew better than God. They could make these judgment calls. God couldn't. They could make these judgment calls. And so we see that same pattern carrying out through history. And it's ironic to me, again, that we have a month 
that is called Pride Month, where people are celebrating making themselves God, making themselves the one who has the ability to set the final standard. If we turn into Scripture, into Genesis, the book of Genesis, it says, so God, in in verse 27 of chapter 1, very beginning of Genesis, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see this order of creation, and we see that in creation, God creates man and he creates woman, and his command to them is to be fruitful and multiply. And so in the very, very, uh, the very created order itself, there is a command to be fruitful and multiply. And I'm sorry to say, but a homosexual relationship, you cannot be fruitful and you cannot multiply. There was a very specific reason that God created male and he created female. And in this design, the, the very basis of the reproductive system of a male and female is created to complement one another. It's created complementary so that when a man and a woman come together, they can create life, new life, new human life. And so God's plan in the beginning, creating man and creating woman, is this complementary, image-bearing pair that can come together and create more image bearers so that the 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 image of god ultimately fills the earth covers the earth and when adam and eve sinned what they did is they took what god had commanded them into their own hands and decided that they knew better and that's what exactly what we see in this celebration of pride It's a celebration of perversion. It's a celebration of distortion of God's created order. And I think what a lot of Christians who argue that homosexuality is not as bad as it seems, and they immediately, one of the things I've noticed is they immediately go into the New Testament to point out that either there is a mistranslation in the cases where it seems like it's condemned, Or they'll point out that Jesus never explicitly spoke about homosexuality and condemned it. But the reason I started with Genesis is the very foundation by which we as Christians should reject the LGBTQ um, agenda is because it defies the created order. That, That, I think, should be the foundation. God, in his creative genius, he created a order to the creation. He created the sun to rise and to set every single day. He created the oceans. He created the land. And he created a very ordered universe. There's a uniformity to nature that's obvious. When you step out your front door, you don't expect to float up and away. You trust that gravity is going to keep you down. You trust that if the sun rose this morning, it's going to rise tomorrow morning as well. There's uniformity to things. And this, this does not just apply to the observable created material universe in terms of nature. It also applies to us as image bearers of God. There's a created order. There's uniformity. And what happens in a homosexual union, if you can even call it that, is a disruption of this uniformity or an attempt to disrupt this uniformity. 
again, I talked about how male and female, they complement each other, not just in characteristics. There are masculine characteristics and there are feminine characteristics, but they also complement themselves, each other in their reproductive characteristics. They complement each other in every single way. There are things a man can do that a woman cannot. And I'm sorry to offend people, but there are things a man can do that a woman cannot. And there are things that a woman can do that a man cannot. For example, a man can never give birth. A man can never carry a child and raise a child in the way a mother can, in the way a woman can. But a woman, she can't do some of the things a man can do. A woman's never going to be able to lift as many weights as a man. A woman is never going to be able to perform in combat the same way that a man could. There are differences. Equal, the equality is there, but there are differences that God designed to complement one another. And we as a culture have become so obsessed with changing what equality means. We, we've, we've, we've twisted equality to mean equal in every regard means that, that we, can, we do the same things. There are no differences between us. If a man does this, a woman can do it. If a woman does this, a man can do it. And, and when we do that, what we actually do is we cheapen the word equality. We cheapen masculinity and femininity, and we destroy them altogether. And this is exactly what homosexual relationships do. They distort masculinity and femininity in such a way that they say it's, it's irrelevant to whether or not we can have a good, healthy union with one another and a sexual union at that. And I w I'm not going to be crass here, but if you drop your drawers and you're two women, or you drop your drawers and you're two men, you don't have complementary sexual parts. You just don't. And so right away, just biology screams that this is a distortion of complementary uniformity in nature. And so clearly God has developed things and placed things in place to protect us. And when we shake our fist at him and say, no, we're going to decide, we ultimately become God. And that's that, we'll, we'll get to why that, that is unacceptable in a little bit. But I do want to point out that in the New Testament, people are always pointing out that Jesus does not address the subject of homosexuality. He doesn't mention it once. And to condemn people who condemn this action... They point out, well, Jesus, not only did he not mention it, but he seems to mention a whole lot about loving people. You're not doing a very good job loving us right now by condemning us. But I want to point out that Jesus does mention homosexuality. Not directly, but he mentions something that is absolutely essential to understanding where Jesus fell on the issue of marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him, to see what he's going to do. And they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And they're trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus said to them, have you not read, listen to this, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man 
separate. And so Jesus, in the same way that I did at the beginning of this episode, he goes back to Genesis to point out the created order, male and female. And he says, the, that, for that reason, the reason God created them male and female, a man and a woman shall join together and become one flesh. And then he says, very importantly, that what God has joined together, let not man separate. And people will go, well, he's talking about divorce. He's talking about divorce and saying divorce is unacceptable. But Jesus is doing more than just talking about divorce. He's defining marriage. He's defining marriage as between a man and a woman. And he's using the basis of the created order in Genesis to point out that this created order stands, stands, and that it should not be changed. And so even as we continue to read the New Testament, when we come to passages that speak of Christ's relationship to the church, it describes Christ as the groom and it describes the church as the bride. Christ is described as the husband, and the church is described as the wife. And so what we have here is another picture that in marriage, in the union of marriage, it's not about, do I love this person in this sexual way? Am I attracted to this person? It's that we are covenantally picturing, depicting, if you will, the relationship that Christ has with his church. And if we as human beings decide that a man and a man or a woman and a woman can come together and be married, we are spitting in the face of what God placed for us to depict a reality of Christ and the church. Marriage is not a partnership between somebody that you're attracted to. Marriage is a covenant before God. It is a sacrament before God. The church has defined that there are different sacraments and marriage is included as a sacrament of the church. And so marriage is a set apart holy thing. And the reason that the church declared holy matrimony as being a sacrament is because of what it pictures. It pictures Christ and his church. So if we go on and ignore that, and decide that we can redefine what a groom is and what a bride is, and redefine what a man is and what a woman is, we cannot hold Scripture in high regard and do that. And so when you look into churches and you see this being proclaimed as being acceptable, it just is, it falls incredibly short. Because God has clearly defined male and female is how he created them. He created them complementary. Jesus says what God has joined together, let no man separate. And Jesus himself is compared to be our groom and we are his bride. That means that the union between a man and a woman is not a sexual union. It's not an emotional union. It is a spiritual union that is covenantally depicting Christ's relationship with his church. And if we distort that in any way, we are blaspheming the name of God. This isn't just a distortion of something that God created a certain way. This is blasphemy to God because it is spitting in the face and mocking what he has created. What he has created marriage to depict. Marriage is a shadow of the things to come. And when we distort it, we do great damage to the holiness of God. Okay, 
Moving on from there, I was kind of focusing in specifically on the Christian apologetic to other Christians that try to promote homosexuality. But now let's go into the completely secular realm. The secularist, the atheist, the agnostic would have us think that as Christians, we should not be able to impose what we believe on them. Because they reject God, that means that God's standards have nothing to do with them and they don't have to obey them. Now, it's true they don't have to obey God's standards, but what doesn't follow is that God's standards don't apply to them. You can be disobedient to God's standards, but by rejecting God and saying there is no God, you don't escape the reality that there is a God and you are accountable to him. Now the problem with the argument that homosexuality is okay because I don't believe in God is that ultimately you have to ask the question from a presuppositional apologetic uh, perspective. You have to ask the question, why is this okay? By what standard is it okay? And ultimately, you will never be able, nobody that I have talked to has been able to give me a standard, an actual standard of why homosexual marriage is right and lawful and good and noble, except from within them, their own, their own selves. They can't point to anything outside of them. And so when they condemn me for being a bigot, and they say, your behavior is bigoted, you can't tell me what to do, you can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. They have no basis to stand on by which they tell me that I can't do what I do. You see, if our understanding of morality is subjective, if our understanding of morality does not go anywhere outside of ourselves, but it's limited to within us and our understanding of right and wrong, then ultimately, we cannot tell other people that they need to conform to our standard. So if an atheist tells me that I cannot condemn homosexuality, they have no ground to stand on to even say that in the first place. Because as far as they can prove... As far as they can justify, their belief that homosexuality is right starts and ends within them. So in the same way, if I engage their worldview, my understanding that homosexuality is wrong, that starts and ends within me as well. So just live and let live. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. We're just fizzing chemicals after all. You see, if I'm the product of evolution and you're the product of evolution, that means that I'm fizzing Christianity and you're fizzing LGBTQianity, right? I just made up that term now. So there's no problem, is the point. There should be no problem. But the reason that there's a problem is they recognize that there's a standard outside themselves that they're trying to enforce upon everybody else. You see, they can't live with the reality that, that morality, the way you treat somebody, is, is entirely subjective. They don't live consistently with that because they demand that you accept them for what they think is right, which, which basically 
what they're asserting there is that they believe that the standard that they have for judging right and wrong shouldn't exist within you as well. And if it doesn't, you're just not a decent human being. So what they've done is they've conceded that there is a standard outside of themselves. But that that standard, sorry, I was looking at my computer because it looked like it went out for a second. New technology, figuring it out. So where was I? They, they assert, basically, that the standard that they have within themselves that they want you to conform to by saying that they have conceded that they believe that, that morality is not subjective, that it has an objective uh, universality to it that is outside of themselves. And so, basically, the problem that this poses, then, is they start to have to play ball in your court by the very nature of the fact that they cannot live, they cannot function, they cannot reason outside of the Christian worldview. In order to assert that something is right, they need a standard and they don't have a standard, so they have no reason to say it's right, and yet they keep on insisting that it is. And so ultimately, what we as Christians need to point out, we need to point to them and say, where are your feet standing? When you make the a universal moral claim that I'm being a bigot for not accepting you, what are you appealing to that's outside yourself to enforce me to live by your standard? And unfortunately, they will never be able to do it because they have created a standard within themselves, and that is it. So the question is, what is that standard? The only standard that we can universally appeal to that is outside of us, that is uniformly uh, universal, it applies to all men, is God and God's word. And so what we need to do is we need to show them that God's word is the basis by which all things in the universe operate. All things in the universe have to have to steal and justify themselves using Christianity. Now, they will distort things to try to make it, to try to satisfy the sinful lusts of their heart, but they can't get around the fact that they're operating within a frame of mind that acknowledges the Christian God as Lord of all things. Humanity cannot function, cannot reason, cannot justify, cannot do anything apart from assuming certain presuppositions that are absolutely, that necessitate the existence of God. I believe it was Greg Bonson who said that his argument for God is because of the impossibility of the contrary. And I believe that this is an excellent, excellent way to put things. Because if God does not exist, we cannot use things like logic. We cannot use things like reasoning. We cannot use things like science. We cannot trust anything is true, and yet we do. And when we do, we assert something. We are asserting something. Every I, I have asserted countless things as true throughout this talk. And if there is no God, nothing that I said matters. And if I were to say, that should make perfect sense too, right? But right now, I imagine you all either snickered when I said that, or you were taken a little bit off guard if you were falling asleep. And why did you do that? Well, because what I just did doesn't make any logical sense to the human mind. But if we say that things make logical sense, and that what I did was an illogical, illegitimate, 
way to communicate. We are assuming that there is order, that there is structure, that there is uniformity. And when we assume those things, we also assume God with it. You cannot separate that. Either you and me evolved from absolutely nothing, and you and me are the product of random chance and chemicals bumping into one another, in which case that is all that we are. Or we are created by God in the image of God. And because we are created by a divine mind, we can reason, we can use logic, we can use science, we can use all of the tools that God has given us to come to conclusions and to be normal, rational, decent human beings. But we cannot do those things without him. And if we try to do those things without him, and we try to suppress him, all that we're doing is stealing the foundation of the Christian faith while denying its maker. And my friends, that is the worst and most dangerous place that you can be. Because when you deny God while borrowing from God, all that you can expect in your future is to face the condemnation of not acknowledging the very one who is giving you breath in your lungs. So what must we do during this Pride Month? Well, first of all, we should remind people that they are celebrating the Noahic Covenant, and it is wonderful. The common grace of God given to man. Don't steal our rainbows. But secondly, and most importantly, we need to point people to the reality that there is a Christ who came, who died, who rose from the dead, who ascended into the heavens, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he sits there, not just drawing all men unto himself and offering salvation to all who would repent and believe, but he also judges those who would not. He brings condemnation upon those who would not repent and bow the knee to him. Our God is a merciful God. He's a graceful God. And he has been so patient with us. We don't deserve any mercy, any grace, and yet he has extended it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, we cannot, we cannot overlook the seriousness of waving around rainbow flags, marching in the streets in the name of pride to assert ourselves as gods. We cannot overlook the seriousness of this sin. This is a very, very, very serious sin. And there is real punishment and real condemnation. And if we, as America, as a nation, do not repent from this, we should not expect, expect blessing from God we can only expect judgment. And so I urge you, if you are part of this LGBTQ group movement, repent. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will renew your heart, renew your mind. He will put new desires within you. But if you continue down this road... Yes, you may have some fleeting pleasure now, but it will end in judgment. 
it will end in death. Thomas Aquinas speaks about the ability to have free will, not in the sense that we would often think of you have three different choices and you can either choose A or B or C, but rather freedom is the ability to choose good. And the more that one is inclined to choose good, the more free that he becomes. And the ultimate freedom in the entire world is found in Jesus Christ because he is the ultimate good. So my friends, if you turn your back on Jesus Christ and you go the opposite direction, you are not becoming free. You're becoming more and more of a slave and more and more in bondage. If you seek true freedom, that is only found in Jesus Christ, the greatest good because he will satisfy the desires of your heart. Homosexual relationships can only be founded upon sexual desire, lust. And people who say, oh, that's not, stop stop making it seem like it's all about sex. I'm sorry, it is all about sex. That's all it's all about. Because I have very close guy friends, guy friends that I would die for, guy friends that I love to death. And the only difference that I can see between that kind of a relationship and a homosexual relationship is the sexual attraction. That's it. And so, here's this perceived good, right? To satisfy my sexual desire. I'm a guy I struggle with lust. But we need to recognize that those lies, that lust, that sex, that those kinds of things are going to satisfy us, they will not Even if our mind perceives them as good, there is a greater good, a greater level of freedom that we can attain in Christ Jesus by faith. Stop trying to make your sexual preferences your identity. If homosexuality, if the LGBTQ says we're just normal, just like everybody else, we we don't we we're we're just like everybody else. We're not special. We're not different. We want to be treated as equal like everybody else. Well, then stop marching around in the streets proclaiming yourself as gay, proclaiming yourself as lesbian, proclaiming yourself as all of these different things. You don't see me doing that as a straight man. You don't see me walking around proclaiming it. So if you are not any different than me, stop going out there. The reason, and this is very important, the reason that people are marching in the streets The reason we have a pride month, the reason we have flags waving everywhere is because people know, they know within the very core of their being that what they are doing is wrong and they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Suppression of the truth is not a quiet endeavor. Suppression of the truth is loud because the truth is so obvious, so in our faces, so right there in everything we do, say, and and think, that the only way that we can suppress it is to try to be louder than the truth. And friends, I'm just going to say, you can march those streets, you can wave those flags, but the truth is always louder. When the mighty Roman Empire persecuted Christians. They thought that they were the greatest thing. They thought they were the biggest, the loudest, the most powerful thing. 
And yet today, the Christian church exists and Rome does not. LGBTQ, you might be loud. You might be raising the roof. You might be shaking the foundations of this nation. Changing things that you believe are going to last forever. But in the end, you will perish. This movement will perish. The seduction of the world will perish. And the church will stand victorious. Whose side do you want to be on? The side of subjectivity? The side that seeks to say there is no uniformity to nature? The side that knows the truth and suppresses it by being as loud as they can? Or the side that calmly sits, standing on the word of God and saying, This is my authority. This is the truth. And recognizing that it is the only thing that can account for absolutely anything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created male and female. And he gave them a mission to fill the earth, to multiply, to subdue the earth. And we as Christians are on a mission to do that. And we will not stop for anything. You can kill us. You can imprison us. You can do whatever you want. The church triumphant continues on. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses over the last 2,000 years, and we will not stop anytime soon. So my call is not one of condemnation. It's not to say there's no hope for you. My call is number one, to call you to repentance, to call you to recognize that there is a God in this universe that loves you more than you can imagine. And if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you will be snatched from the power of Satan, snatched from the kingdom of darkness, and you will be adopted as a son and daughter of the Most High King. That is the truth, and that is beautiful. Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. He came. He lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried for three days. On that third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended on high. And he sits to make intercession for all men who would come to him in faith. The second thing I want to do is remind you that if you do not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will perish in your sins. And there is nothing more tragic than that, but it is the truth. You will perish in your sins. And then the third thing is for Christians. As we go into the world, as we go to make disciples of all nations... We cannot waver on the word of God, on orthodox Christianity. We cannot waver at all. For if we do, we cease to be part of the Christian church. We end up worshiping something other than the triune God. And so we as Christians, we need to stand on orthodoxy. We need to stand on the word of God. And we need to proclaim the truth. That the only standard for right, for wrong, for anything is found in God alone. We need to be triumphant. We need to be optimistic about the future. And we need to continue to preach the gospel, believing truly that God is going to save the world through that gospel. So I think that's about wraps up what I wanted to say. I will leave you all with this. We as a nation have become, we've hit a low when we have a month to celebrate pride. 
I don't think there's a way around that. We've hit a very, very, very deep low. But whenever there's a low, it's always followed by a high. If there's a valley, in order to recognize a valley, there must also be mountains. So if we're in the valley, there are also mountains. And Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, it is descending from heaven. The kingdom that we are to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it is coming. And so we as Christians should not grow weary. We should not grow faint. We should trust the promises of God. And we should recognize that through prayer, through faithfulness, through preaching the gospel, the nations will be discipled, the world will be converted. So let us live in a way that is pleasing to him. Let us not look down on others. Let us not condemn others. Let us not, let, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this because I want to I want to say this right. I don't want to mess this up at all. As Christians, in order for us to preach truth, it has to be laced in love. Nothing means anything if it's not grounded in love. And so when we go preaching to our LGBTQ friends, we need to have love as the motivation and the drive to preach the truth. If there's no love, they're going to sense that, they're going to see that, they're going to know that. But if there's true love, true love that loves them to death, that will speak volumes to the truth that is then presented. So we need to be careful that we're being good witnesses of Christ, that we're not just going, we're not speaking truth from a, a place of pride of our own, right? Because I think we oftentimes can do that. We can, we can have this pride rise up in us that we've got it figured out, and we can look down on those, oh, those depraved people. We need to recognize that we have nothing to boast in except Jesus Christ snatching us from the very same kingdom of darkness and so if we're christians the first thing on our minds and hearts should be compassion pity and humility not pride not a feeling of being better but a feeling of utter compassion for those who do not have what we possess in jesus christ and so that should drive our preaching of the gospel to be very compassionate very christ-like very loving and when we do that, we will truly change the world. And so with that, I think I will conclude. Let's just, let's just close in a word of prayer because I think it's important. Father God, we, we come before you and we, we thank you for we thank you for life, Lord. We thank you for life in Jesus Christ. We pray for our nation, God a nation that celebrates pride, that celebrates the slaughter of children, a nation that is so rebellious to you, Lord. 
We pray that you would grant our nation repentance. We know that it's only by your grace that we can repent, that we can believe. And so, Lord, we, we pray for our nation. We ask that you do a mighty work in the hearts of those who are rebellious to you, Lord. We pray for our leaders. We pray for President Joe Biden, for Vice President Kamala Harris, Lord. We pray for them. Keep us from the seat of the mocker, Lord. Keep us from mocking these people, God, that are created in your image, that need your grace just as much as we do. God, we ask that through Jesus Christ, our testimony for the gospel, our witness would be fruitful, God. We want to reach the world. We know we cannot do it from a place of pride. Grant us humility, compassion, Lord. Grant us unity among the brethren so that they will look in and they will know that Jesus Christ was sent by you, Father. Help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel that you have given us. Help us to present it to others so that they might be saved. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all for tuning in. Talk to you guys next time.